Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. Hello, the the curious thing is the notion of a mirror. I want I want you to think of the notion of a mirror. A mirror doesn't have any history from the past. A mirror is completely in the moment, instantaneously in the moment, with no history whatsoever. And the notion of a miracle, the notion of a miracle, a miracle being performed, The universe wasn't fatigued at all when Jesus would fulfill a miracle. It didn't exhaust or consume the universe at all. Just like like if if you turn a mirror and see a whole new scenery through that mirror, the mirror is not fatigued. It's not. The the principle of miracles cannot be exhausted. It's a fundamental part of creation. I suggest we've all been excellent magicians at the miracle of creation, but we haven't been able to bring it into a conscious space. I tell you, we have a great show tonight. The topic tonight is Wisdom is Bliss, and our guest tonight is Robert Thurman, but we're going to bring him on in just a minute. But I want to go back to this notion of the universe really isn't going to change per se. When you were born, you didn't know how to walk. And six six months, nine months, 12 months, 18 months, you started walking. The principles of gravity didn't shift itself around to accommodate your walking. You changed. You came into harmony with gravity. The principles of miracles will not change. They're in effect right now and right now and right now forever. It's going to be you that changes. That's part of that's part of the proverbial journey. Um, I think we're going. To, <laughs> I'm so excited for tonight's show. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. Again, the topic tonight is wisdom is bliss, and our guest is Robert Thurman. Wisdom is bliss is the name of his latest book. Four friendly fun facts that can change your life. Buddha had to be an educator rather than a prophet or religious religion founder. Since he had achieved his goal of exact and complete understanding of reality by using this reason, experiments to open his mind, I love that, and the vision to do so, Thurman writes, From his own experience, he could help others as a teacher by streamlining the process. He could not just transplant his realization into their minds. They could not get their own realizations just by believing whatever he said, just by believing whatever he said. He could only provide them with a prospect of full realization along a path of learning and experiencing they could follow. They would have to travel that on their own. This book he has written is your invitation to travel that same road. Deeply felt and bracingly direct, it doesn't teach about the teaching, it is the teaching. Our guest tonight 
Robert Thurman has been a close friend of the Dalai Lama's for over 50 years. He is a leading worldwide lecturer on Tibetan Buddhism, passionate activist for the plight of the Tibetan people, a skilled translator of Buddhist texts, that would be fascinating, an inspiring writer of popular Buddhist books. His most recent book is the 300-page graphic novel, Man of Peace, the illustrated life story of the Dalai Lama of Tibet. And you can learn more about him at tibethouse.us. Join me in welcoming to the show. Robert, welcome to the show tonight. Well, thank you. It's so nice to talk to you. And uh, by the way, you have described my book and what I'm trying to convey. You are like totally on the same plane. It's a miracle. I'm, I'm so delighted. I'm, I'm so delighted, too. We're going to have a lot of delightfulness. <laughs> <laughs> well, why not? Why not? That's, That's really right. wonderful. Well, the... Um, the notion as the Buddha being an educator rather than a prophet yes. or religion founder. I mean, I, um, for me, I grew up in the uh, traditional uh, Christian dialogue. And, and when, when I look at the teachings of Jesus, um, he's really calling us to kind of like step up to the plate and, and own our own um uh, divinity, perhaps, uh, when he said, when Jesus said to the masses, you all will do everything I have done and more. What What is it about the Buddha teachings, do you think, that uh, um, would help the human condition on the earth at this time now? Well, I don't think that it's anything better than what Jesus did. I think the two are on the exact same plane, actually. And they both are giving a message about that reality. They want to reassure people, I think, which, of course, is what I'm also trying to do in my much lesser way. They're trying to reassure people that reality loves them, basically. Jesus did it in terms of God loves you. And I'm the here to, I'm the witness of that, and I'm the proof of that. And Buddha did it by saying that reality itself, in the form of all any divine being, so that doesn't exclude the God of the Jews or the God of Israel, that all these divine beings are those who are aligned with the nature of reality itself, and reality is love in the precisely defined sense of, of an inexhaustible, infinite energy that can accomplish all your wishes, that in fact will embrace you in a bliss and a happiness and a freedom that you even can't quite imagine for yourself, so you can't quite wish for that much because you think it's impossible for you. But reality is there to bring you the miraculous, as you said in the introduction, which I love that you said that. Reality is ready for, is the miraculous, actually. And, and Buddha did, he discovered that in a, in a culture and a society where they taught that reality is quite frightening. And the God were quite frightening. There was sort of a main creator God and then there were other kinds of gods and you had to make rituals and offerings and penances to those gods or they might give you a bad time. And so, (laughs) right? And so Buddha is the one who said, well, the gods are great and they do a good job, but the most, what they want you to know is that reality itself is there for them in whatever form they are able to perceive it. And so, and I feel that Jesus was very much like that, like he, he was a little outside the rule book of Judaism. He was a rabbi. He, was a, he, was a, he served as a rabbi. They, 
teacher. People called him Rebbe, which means teacher simply in Hebrew. And, and he was teaching people, but the difference between the two, when you say, what does Buddha have to offer? The difference between the two is that the social situation that Jesus faced was one of where the, the state of Israel was under Roman conquest and therefore suppression by the Roman Empire. And therefore, Jesus didn't live to deliver his message past four years from his beginning of his sort of teaching, 29 to 33. And then the Romans put a stop to it because they were scared that he would, he would bring up the courage and the, the Jewish people would demand freedom from them. So right. they killed him, actually. And in the Buddha's case, he lived in a much richer country. In those days, India was the richest country in Eurasia. It's, it's alluvial river valleys with 35 times larger than the Nile Valley, which was the richest one in the Mediterranean. It was 35 times larger. And just like today, India is much larger than all of Europe, much less the Mediterranean nations. And um, even then, it was, although things were much smaller in those days, of course, but it was still, you know, relatively, proportionally much bigger. And therefore, Buddha, was, there was no conqueror on top of Buddha's country. And he right. was free to teach from the age of 35 until when he, he attained his full understanding to the age of uh, 81, so 46 years. So he wow. had time to flesh out the different methods that different people could need to try to realize what both he and Jesus and a number of other world teachers were teaching. And, uh, right. and therefore, therefore, he can give us more methods for a greater variety of people than that could have been found from that the social time of under basically you know Saint Paul and these guys they were all under the Romans and Saint Peter was killed in Rome you know etc you know they they all given a hard time all the time by the Romans who were kind of rough you know they they weren't nice like the Italians nowadays with the pasta and the fashion and the Alfa Romeo automobiles. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know they, in those days the Romans were very very you know they were like the Russians or something you know they were like the KGB or something they were not friendly well you know the the so, the, mm-hmm. the curious thing is um, like g- gravity we can't see gravity but we can see the effect yes. of gravity everybody can right. see the effect of gravity and then there's a right. really elusive thing, um, electricity. And it uh, mm-hmm. electricity was all around us, but we were ignorant to it for a very long time. And now electricity has moved into our lives. Now fast right. forward, fast forward to consciousness. Holy cow! Yeah. Talk about the elephant in the room, consciousness. I love what you <laughs> said when the Buddha said, "Reality loves you." And I, th- I think the relationship with that love that reality has or source consciousness has for us uh-huh. is, call- is elusive to us until we can bring our own consciousness, our own intent. Yes, yes, yes. You know, and, and the thing is that, you know, both Buddha and Jesus told us that. They said reality loves you. But you need to realize that reality is you as well as whatever you think is outside of yourself. And you have to find reality where you touch it in the heart and where it is your heart, if you will. And uh, Jesus really was there to show that we are divine. And, uh, and you know, as, as Buddha was there to show that we can be Buddhists, he, he wanted everyone to be just as like him. But then later, you know, the, as things went down the generations in the different societies, the authorities in those societies who were not quite at the same level as the original, 
they tended to sort of act like, you know, well, all you had to do was repeat Buddha's name or all you had to do is repeat Jesus's name. Right. Or, you know, all you had to do was say you were Christian or say you were Buddhist. And then that was good enough, even if you acted like an idiot and were mean <laughs> to people. I mean, and by that, I mean, were mean to people and thereby in a way mean to yourself. Since yeah. you are really, we are so interconnected with each other. If we harm others, that's really harming ourselves. And if we love them and are nice to them, then we're in line with the nature of reality and they end up loving us. And so it, that's, that's a win-win. You know, like, in other words, the world, the nature of reality is such that being loving and being good is a win-win. It's never a loss. It's not right. a zero-sum game, right? And that's, kind of, that's a miracle because societies tell us in order to control us, in order to, like, take a hold of our freedom and, may, and, and put us under their control, you know, the high priest or the king or the president or the minister, they want to boss us around, and so they want us to feel scared of reality, and then we have to think, oh, we have to go through them to be okay, otherwise we won't be. Right. So that will, make right. us, that will make us very, you know, very, very um, subordinate to them. And we'll surrender yeah. our freedom to them. Whereas Buddha and Jesus wanted us to find our own freedom within ourselves. And then out we, would, we would do better for the authorities by being more loving and being happy. But, you know, they, then they get nervous and they don't believe that. And then they want to suppress us instead. You know, that's what, so, so both Buddha and Jesus had to rebel a little bit. And the authority was so rigid in Jesus' case because it was a conquering empire. It wasn't yep. his own true Israeli king. Like, it wasn't King David. It wasn't King Saul. It wasn't the self-upstanding Jewish king, Israeli king. It was instead the, the Roman conquering empire, you know, a despotic empire. Right. So that's the only difference, really, between the two, in my opinion. And I didn't think that at first, uh, by the way. I, I I I thought at first that you know I was so delighted to discover the methods that the Buddha. I was actually very delighted that Buddha said, "By the way, I know this, and I know this reality, and I'm connected to it, and so are you." But actually, I'm so sorry. I can't just tell you something that will make you automatically know that. I can only give you a method where you buy, you can work on it and you can unlearn how you've been scared by people and by authorities and you can directly experience it. But, but well, uh, you have to experience it yourself. My failing you something doesn't enable you to experience it just by believing what I say, as you, as you said in the introduction. And, and Jesus kind of said the same thing, you know. He, he gave the Sermon on the Mount <laughs> and then afterwards he said, well, you know, if later when I'm up at the right hand of the Father and, um, and some people will come to me and say, let us into heaven, Lord, because we did very powerful things on the world in your name. And then Jesus said, well, I'm sorry, but I will tell them, I know ye not, get thee gone, ye evil doer. <laughs> Right. Meaning that that person did violence to people as a king or as an authority of some sort, power person, and they just recited Jesus's name, but they didn't do what he said, which was to love their neighbor and love the Lord and and give the give your shirt off your back to the to the neighbor, to the poor person, and so on. You know, and they didn't well, do that; they just acted powerful. And then he said, "Sorry, then I'm not going to accept you." So that means that he. He's saying he's not going to just do it for you because he, he would if he could, but he can't. Because right. we have to, we have to, if someone forces us to be free, we will rebel against it and won't accept that as real freedom. You know, we have to discover freedom ourselves, you know. And that was what he said. Don't you think? What do you think? You're well, really great the way you explain it. Well, the the curious thing, I mean, um, there's there's no account anywhere in all of history where some glowing orb came down from the skies 
and made a mass effect on the populace. In other words, a glowing orb comes down and looks at the slums of India and waves a magic wand, and now all the slums are palaces. Didn't happen. And when you talk about the notion that these saviors or these teachers, I like the teacher better than the the savior, but uh, I like the metaphor of learning how to walk. I can't tell you how to learn how to walk because it's your relationship with gravity. And so when we look at the teachings of the Buddha, it's it's what, what we're literally talking about is I can't program your relationship with reality because your relationship with reality is your own consciousness. And just just the same way that you had to bring around a learning process, a learning curve to learn how to walk and then run and dance. Gravity didn't change. Your relationship with gravity changed, if that makes sense. Exactly, exactly. And and you're you're permeated with gravity. It's like it it suffuses every cell in your body. Right. It's wonderful, you know. Then you can learn to do things like surf, stand on a tightrope, Yes. Walk across from one one building to another, high above the streets, you know, and like it's just like you're strolling around in the park, and you can learn to do that because when you know you're kind of one with it and you have no fear and you feel connect the connection, you know, experience the connection, you know, in the same way when you know that you are embraced by all the enlightened and loving and Saving beings. I mean, every mom is a savior. She wants to save her child, you know, and she does up to a point until the kid, like, runs away. <laughs> and, well, and so they, and the saviors are also good. I mean, it's great, but the teacher, in a way, if they, if they know what they're talking about and they're not pretending, you know, and, and or they're not, their real motive is not to sort of line, enslave the people they're teaching. Then the teacher also is a kind of savior, I think. That's okay. I love it that Jesus is thought of as a savior. The Buddhists have like what they call Avalokiteshvara, terrible thing to pronounce. (laughs) 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 And and so it really makes it hard for those poor people to have to pronounce that. But, uh, you know, that who is sort of said to be the compassion, the love and compassion of all Buddhas. He's like, has a thousand arms and so on. You know, it's like a has an elaborate uh, 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 embodiment, so so they 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 are they have that idea. So so anyway, it is a, anyway. It's a, it's a miracle. What was that other thing you said? I really liked this. You said that when you see the reflection in the mirror, you haven't damaged the mirror, you, um, way, and yet you see yourself there. Um. Um. I use that in reference when when we have uh, show topics about the quantum. Um, the, yes, if yes. if you think about reality as a reflection of yourself, the the yes. mirror, the quantum mirror that does the reflection is not taxed at all, no matter what image oh, yes. you portray to it. It's, right, it's, right. The, it's the notion of um, well. We were talking the other day in our pre-show chat about how there's no template. A lot of times um, when the religious yes. context comes in, they, they talk about righteousness. And Amir, yes. doesn't get, um, Amir doesn't care about what is what image is projected into it for it to reflect. If yes. you think about gravity, ballet dancers who master master their relationship with gravity, they don't take math. They don't take physics. They don't have to know the why of the gravity. They just have to know their own relationship to it. Yes, yes, that's really brilliant. I love, well, we love the mirror, uh, all the things that you can understand by using the analogy of the mirror, you know. We love that because why I particularly like that is that you know, when you see yourself in the mirror, actually what you see is a guy in there who looks like you. And it looks like he's in another room in three dimensions. It looks like you're looking through a window, right? Yeah. And, and we have a little dog, a little Pekingese dog. 
and he's really sweet as he could be, but he just can't get it. And when we don't cover up a, a glass door or anything that reflects, you know, um, with a chair or a box or something, and he sees that other dog in there, he will not stop barking until he passes out and falls asleep. Or we move it, you know, so he can't see it. <laughs> he doesn't. Right. He didn't figure it out that that it's not another dog in the mirror, and he's guarding the house, you know, from this other dog who even looks a lot like him. <laughs> I like that and, metaphor. And then, yeah, and then but then see we, but on the other hand, we, you know, maybe when we were little, we reached up and then we touched the glass surface of the mirror, you know, and yes. at, at some point we don't remember, but then we learned to correct the misperception of a person in a room who looks like us, except the left and right are reversed in the mirror. You know, yes. the left side of the face looks like the right side and so on. So we learn to correct it and we get so sharp and we're so smart to correct it that we sort of almost as if we do see it as just a flat thing on a surface, but we don't actually see it as a flat thing on a surface, but our, our mind can correct it super fast where it is like we directly see just the reflection in the mirror. And what, what, what is wonderful about that is that when we're walking around or, you know, even if we talk and think about gravity, we tend to think of the gravity as something other than us and outside of us. And right. or when we see, when we see a wall in front of us, we think that wall is really by itself, like a really super duper thing. And that wall is not the infinite quantum energy of the loving universe, of the loving reality. You know, the, that plant that is absorbing my carbon dioxide and sending me back oxygen is not a miracle put there by, by nature, let's say by mother nature, you know, so that I can breathe, you know, because she loves me, the human being on this beautiful planet, you know. And so instead we think, well, that's just an inanimate object. But the point is, once we learn about spirit and about the miraculousness of nature, we can correct that misperception instantaneously so that when we see the wall, we appreciate it as a wonderful gift of nature. When we see the plant, we, we, we realize the plant loves us. We can begin to feel we're living in a place of love, in a wonderful field of love. And we can correct what all authorities, I'm sorry, both political and all too often religious, the high priest, you know, right. they all have a, they all get involved in power and then they want, they have a, they have a motive to make us feel that we have, we need them to be happy. You know, we can't right. make it unless they do something because you know, they scare us about the nature of reality. And, uh, and we have to, in order to free ourselves from that, we have to correct, but because we will feel scared, you know, when they say, when they, they say, oh, you're going to, this is terrible, this is that is going to happen to you if you don't do what I say and you don't do this and don't do that, and and they will, and they will make us live very nervous, you know, we get very anxious all the time that someone's going to judge us and going to do something to us. Because we're very, you know, we have our problems, you know, we're not perfect usually. And so... The whole of that reality where we are really in this rather anxious place all the time is like a mirror reflection. Each yes. time we have a little bit breakthrough insight when we hear you say about the quantum mirror, spiritual mirror, really. Quantum just opens yes. up to the fact that it's spiritual because sure. nobody can say exactly what it is, you know. They pretend, right. you know. And I, I'm very, you know, Buddha was a great physicist in my view because he discovered relativity 2,500 years ago in the, in the sense that he said that there is no absolute thing in all of these interrelated things that controls them all that therefore you have to be bossed around by. There's, it's not a, there's no being, there's no, there's no atom, there's no whatever it is that itself is absolute because to be absolute means it can't relate. So therefore, the absolute is not, is not relevant to us. And therefore, right. what is relevant to us is what we relate to. And in a way, we are therefore the whole, we are interactively part of the whole world. 
So the, what is actually absolute is the whole relativity. So then love becomes the absolute thing. And to make it, some relationship just a little bit better is the absolute greatest thing of all. Well, in that absoluteness, there's there's no template. Like you were using the yes. example of, yes. of re- religious leaders trying to inflict fear in our thought process. It yes. I, in that uh, metaphor, I like gravity. It's like gravity gets angry. It's well, dope. actually, no, it doesn't. If I go tumbling down <laughs> the stairs, it wasn't because gravity was pissed off at me. The, the universe as a whole is unbiased. So why would I bring right. my own bias? I would suggest right. that the, the, the journey of the Buddha or of the Jesus or the Krishna is, is kind of a cleansing and purifying of our um, incongruent thoughts with the nature of reality. Because yes. the nature of reality yes. doesn't change. It's 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 the transformation of ourselves yes. that brings us more into alignment with it. Yes, exactly, exactly. But and the, it's very key though that we that that when in in the process of really coming to know that we are able to correct the perception that we have. Like when we do fall down, we do get mad. Like the Dalai Lama used to jokingly tell tell a story about. Because he was always telling different stories to help people try to not be angry at the world, you know. And when he was in Tibet as a child, he found a couple of old cars that had been given as gifts to his previous incarnation. I think an old Austin uh, automobile, British automobile or something, and a Jeep. And he wanted to fix them up because he was a little boy, you know, and he wanted to ride in his little Austin or his little Jeep. So he had a, an attendant, a friend, who was uh, taking care of him. Who one of, the, one of them was a good mechanic. And he used to try to fix it. And he said he used to la- laugh. He laughed because he couldn't prevent his mechanic, who had a very kind of a little bit hot temper. But he would be like under the car, and he would skin his knuckles like the, the wrench would slip or something. Right. And he would hurt his knuckle. He would the the guy would bang the car with his head <laughs> a couple more times. He would go, Oh, the car this car, you know, and he'd we'd be under the car and he'd bang his head on the car. It's like to punish the car for hurting his knuckles. Right. <laughs> and he could never get him to stop doing that, even though when the guy was calm or when he wasn't working in the car, he would tell him, Now come on now, you made a mistake the way you turned the the wrench and the car didn't do it. So don't right. be mad at the car. And when you hit your head on the car, you're hurting yourself more. Don't, don't do it. I think I would say, "Oh, you're right, your holiness." Oh, yes, you're right. Of course, of course. But then he would lose his temper and he would do it again. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the curious yeah. thing. Um, a lot of times, people take um, what's happening to them as personal, and. Yes. And, and part of the transformation of ourself, um, the path to freedom is to is to disconnect from the um, experience of some kind of a personal infliction or a personal um, infliction right. of, of reality. And and as right. you cleanse and purify yourself on the inside, it's always an inside job. And what I really like about your book, Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life, <laughs> the moment you start changing your relationship to reality, your relationship to reality changes as a result of that. So you can walk yourself out of the struggle. Yes, that's right. That's true, and uh, and it and it, so it does. Have, although, although what Buddha and Jesus say to us doesn't automatically do it unless we do something right. ourselves to open our own hearts and minds. But the fact that someone who seems to have had experience reassures us that reality is with us, and reality has every facility for us to change ourselves to fit with it. Well, right. it's it's good rather than because the other people get so scared that reality itself is bad. You know, nature is red in tooth and claw. You know, 
the famous right. line, isn't it, from Longfellow or something, then makes people scared. And so then they then they want to pave over the, the, the lawn. You know, they don't want, they don't like the woods. You know, they want to cut down all the trees. You know, they want to make it remake reality in some way that they feel safe, not realizing that the trees are there to give them oxygen, you know. And, uh, and you know, I mean, that reality is actually very, very much in their favor. That's the key thing, you know. It's like God, it's like faith. That's where faith is important. You know, Buddha, Buddha is not against faith, but he doesn't like blind faith. He wants faith that makes sense to us because, you know, we, that's the way we are, right? Like I have faith when I go to the crossroad to the, you know, when I'm in town, when the light is green, I still look left and right, but I have kind of faith I can go across the street and I have faith right. that I shouldn't go across when it's a red light, you know. Although I might if no one is on, you know, if it's one in the morning and there's no one on the road. But 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 the point is, if, uh, so some kind of reasonable faith is very very important, you know. But but blind faith may not be is blind faith if it was in the right thing, would wouldn't be bad either. But you'd have no way of knowing if it was a reasonable thing to have faith in or not. So the, so it's very important to. What I'm really trying to achieve in the Wisdom is Bliss book is I'm challenging the statement that ignorance is bliss. You know, ignorance is bliss is a staying in a culture where the, the general education and the general sort of media and whatever get people to feel that they, that they really don't really want to know what's really going on because it would be so frightening. It would be so scary or something. So then they say ignorance is bliss. If you don't know what's going to happen, then you're happy and you should be good. Whereas wisdom is bliss means if you know what is real, then you will be happy. That's the way to be happy because the reality wants you to be happy. That's the key thing. It's there for you to be happy. And, you know, of course, the key thing here, Les, is, you know, which the Tibetans were particularly good about, not because of being Buddhist, but they just were because of receiving that kind of teaching. And that is, we have to overcome being afraid of death. Yes. You know, you know now, now that's a good thing about materialism, by telling people that, that we're only a biological robot and we don't have a spirit, we don't have a soul, we don't really have a mind, we just think we, it's an illusion that we have a mind. They say we're just like a computer run amok, you know with a weird computer in our brain. But that, in a way, that was a little bit good because then people thought, well, I, I don't have to fear hell. I don't have to fear some horrible situation, a monster waiting to eat me after I die. And that kind of calmed them down, although maybe it was a little bit of a false reassurance because the problem with that is a big discovery of mine. <laughs> I get it stronger and stronger every day newsflash, nothing is nothing. So it's not a space waiting for us to go there. It, there's no room in nothing for us. Do you know what I mean? We are living processes. So so when we leave this body, we go. We got to go somewhere. It's like when you have a dream, you know, you're going around in the dream, you go to the Paris, you know, you have a cup of coffee on the left bank or something, and then you wake up and you're back at home. So, you know, we, we always go where we always go somewhere after different changes that happen to us. And it's, we have, there's no, no example of anybody staying nothing. You know, if you leave, if you, if you leave your body, the psychic can still talk to you and your relative can ask you questions. You know, some of those psychics, I love it. You know, the, 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 the departed lady, she said to them, where, where she hid the cat food. She wanted her cat to get fed. So she tells through the psychic, they're going to the psychic to see if grandma is okay. But all grandma wants to tell them to the psychic is don't forget to feed the cat. <laughs> and there are many, <laughs> and there are many examples of that, you know, because people don't go away. They go in different to different places and they may go in several different places. They might go into another life and also hover around their former loved ones to try to help them out reaching down from heaven and giving them some good advice sometimes or something like that. And we all know about ghosts, you know, somebody who's mad at somebody after they die. 
they can haunt them and so on because someone was mean to them when they were alive. And uh, so it's pretty obvious worldwide that, uh, that, uh, that, that there's no nothing. So I'm saying the materialist reassurance of people that nothing will happen to you is at least a step better than automatically if you were naughty at all, you've got hell waiting for you or purgatory or some terrible situation, which people were too scared about like that in the Middle Ages. and think they really were too frightened to use their own wits in the proper way, you know, and challenge the authority. So that was a good right. step. But then on the other hand, on the other hand, I think it let, it let, it led the people in our culture to be a bit irresponsible because we feel no matter how we behave in life, it won't have any consequences. Yeah, because we're going to be nothing. And I actually even think that people, like I had this experience with my grandfather when I was first studying Buddhism. He was 92 when I started, and he passed at 97. And during those five years, he kind of changed his mind about that he would just be nothing when he died, and he hedged his bets, and he started being much nicer to to his daughter, my mother, and me, and other people, and he less grumpy. But he wanted, he was hedging his bets, you know. I mean, he didn't call for a priest or a minister or something right away. But he definitely decided that he should think about, well, what about if I have it, uh, I still exist in some form. And that, then he, that made him behave in a nicer way. And it was really, really nice, you know. And, right. uh, and so that's a very important thing. So then what I was going to say about the defendants is they define death as when the human being becomes so intensely alive that the body no longer can contain that energy because the body has become old and too weak or because it's defective or they had an accident and the body is broken in some way. And, and, but they don't go into nothing and they don't go into some bad situation. But what they do is they embrace the big, huge, infinite energy of life it's all around us, like the gravity. They become gravity. They become, you know, that kind of a power that can hold, hold the earth on a planet, you know, hold mountains down on the surface of a planet, which is a huge power. So what, what death actually is defined by them, as it was by Buddha, is as a time when you have, you, you, you suddenly shoot into your big life, the pure energy of life. You become like a flying saucer or something yourself and then but the thing is if you've never imagined that that can scare people and then they they get very they can have a little difficulty in the afterlife and often they meet jesus or buddha or some sort of a guide depending on what their culture is and then that person helps them out you know and i don't know i'm sure that you have read some of those near-death experience accounts for yes. the people who suddenly found themselves in heaven and everything, and they go through a tunnel of light, and then they shoot out into a big thing, and then they meet the, friend, the, the helper, and then sometimes the ones who tell us the story, of course, are sent back. And they say, well, no, you're not, it's not your time. You have more to do and more to learn on, the, on earth, and back you go. And they even, they, many of them often say they didn't really want to at that time because they're feeling more magnificent than they've ever felt. Right. That great light, you know. So, well, so you know, the, you know, the mm-hmm, yes, mm-hmm. the 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 subtitle of your book, um, the book is "Wisdom is Bliss: Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change yes. Your Life." Now, if yes. we were to look at the uh, traditional human being on planet Earth. What are some uh, low-hanging fruit? What's some, what's some easy things we can do with our consciousness that would change the reflection from the proverbial mirror? I mean, what, what are some yes. takeaways? Well, the first thing would be that we have to gain a greater confidence in our own good sense we should have a greater admiration of our own human brains and our intelligence, which is tremendous, you know. Even those theologians in the Western religions who try to make a big difference between God and a human being, 
admit that there is this spark, this soul spark in the human being, which is a spark of the divine. And, you know, they have these ideas of radical otherness of God, and they have all these things which are part of them assuming authority. It's their own construction. Because God said he's there with us. He loves, he gives his son, son in the West. And Buddha says everybody is going to be a Buddha. And they will be sooner or later. So they should, you know, they, they better get to it, hop to it, <laughs> because it's more fun to be one. And, and uh, but, but, uh, so, so the point is, the first thing they can do is correct their view, or stop putting themselves down, that I can't really understand this, and I can't really understand, and I have to go see an expert, I don't really know what's going on, all this. And of course, sometimes you do have to consult an expert about different things, but the point is then you evaluate what they tell you with your own common sense and your own intelligence. You don't just blindly accept whatever they say. And so that's the first thing. And then once you've learned that, once you've gotten a little more self-confidence, so you feel like, you know, I have to give, have faith that what makes sense to me is sensible, then you can start meditating. And you, should, you have to get a little bit of self-confidence first, or you can, you can get lost a little bit meditating. So then you can meditate. And when you meditate, then you, what you're doing is you're saying, I want to discover more and more of my, my abilities and my, my awarenesses. I want to expand my awareness. I want, to, I want to find out what really makes me tick. I want to look into myself. It's called mindfulness practice. So then you, one learns to sit still. The whole thing about certain posture, cross your legs, and do whatever it is, you, you don't necessarily have to do that. You can sit in a chair. You can even lie down as long as you're not too tired. <laughs> then you'll fall asleep. But, you know, you, you start just quieting down and not rushing ahead all the time, reacting to things, and you start observing what you're thinking. And you start... You, you get a point where you don't necessarily believe everything you think. So you decide, well, oh, I'm only thinking that because I heard somebody say it yesterday or because somebody told me there. And anyway, what is my own inner voice? Is it my, me now or is it me 20 years ago or is it my mom's voice or my dad's voice? I've, I always find in myself Walter Cronkite's voice. I think, <laughs> Les, I don't know how old you are, but you know what yes. I'm talking about. Yes. When I, I, I have a deep inner voice, when I something, when my, I muse to myself, well, that's really the way it is. And when I'm very sure of something, I think it sounds like Walter Cronkite. But that's just me. <laughs> but I'm, so, so you begin to look and see that your mind has certain ways and patterns of reaction and things, and you become more self-aware. And that makes you more free in your mind. Because, for example, somebody annoys you, and a voice in your mind, in your head says, "I can't take that. What a jerk! How can how can anybody be like awful like that? You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna show him one or something. You know, and then your right. your emotion will jump out, and you kind of you just you're a victim of having to just react automatically to, to any time people push your button, and you get yourself in in problems like that. And so when you become more mindful, I always say it's like. It's like you suddenly, you've been watching TV all this time and you were always stuck on this channel or that and you had to sit through the commercials and the whole thing. And finally you have a clicker. And so when somebody's really being, doing something stupid or the program is really boring or it's too many commercials, you go click and you go to HBO where they have no commercials. <laughs> you know, nice. In other words, you, you, you know, some people get into, they think by meditating, they're going to shut down every sound in their mind and they're going to reach, they're going to float off into space. But that, that's silly. The idea is to become more aware and find the spaciousness in their own being and to become more free inside themselves so they can be more positive in their reactions, more self-restrained of the negative ones. And they start to have a smoother life because they are able to not react immediately and get in a fight with someone, but kind of make a joke and move them out of their own irritability and then have better relations with people. And so, to follow me, so so these are the really helpful things. 
is to be more aware and to be more and to begin to understand why it's better to be nice than not to be. On the other hand, not to be like just a doormat or a, or a martyr because then you'll get resentful later and be realistic about oneself and one's reactions. So it's a matter of learning how to manage yourself. It's like, what is the operating manual of, a, of, your, of yourself as a human being? You know, I had one Lama who was so amused by us, you know, because he said, well, Americans will tend to or people, really, he, he would say, even in India or anywhere, even to it, they will tend to immediately jump somewhere and go do something spiritual and then, without thinking about it. But then if they're buying a vacuum cleaner or a car, they, they go to consumer reports, they study how it works, they look at the other people who have that car or that vacuum cleaner, they, they, how is it made, does it have five stars? You know, I mean, they really make a study of it. And then when they get the uh, get by the thing, they read the operating manual and the jail to know which button to push and what to do. But in a way, nobody really gives us the operating manual of ourselves. And I've been a, a professor for 50 years, and I, you know, I'm recently retired, and I still teach off campus, so to speak, nowadays. And uh, and I never, however, was really teaching people the operating manual of themselves. And I think even our people in the psych department, they don't do that. They just are looking to invent some, you know, neurotransmitter so that some drug company can make a new antidepressant or something. Basically, that's what they do in psychology departments in universities nowadays. I know some psychologist colleagues of mine who are really fed up with it, but there's nothing they can do about it because that's what they, because the idea that the mind is just a machine, you know. And uh, anyway, you know, if I had tried to teach people how to operate their emotions or whatever it would be, how to cultivate a more easygoing way of being with others, it would have, people would have been freaked out. Oh, you're doing religion or, oh, you're, you're doing psychotherapy or oh, you're doing whatever you're not teaching. You're supposed to just give them information and they go out and they make a million dollars or something. You know, so our, our schools are not that good about that. But although there's some beginning to change about it, but the whole point is, to learn how to operate yourself. And this is, this is a great skill of that. The, the Indian traditions in general are the most skillful in that. The yoga came from India. You know, now there's like millions of people, to hundreds of millions, tens of millions of people doing yoga. And, and that's a great way of, of increasing your health, avoiding arthritis, avoiding a lot of health problems by learning to keep your body flexible and resilient and stuff sort of a science of how to operate your body, you could say, which is much better than, I mean, sports people have a decent thing about it, but in our school culture, but normal people don't really get taught that. They just learn to swim, and then they play things like football, where they basically try to beat each other up, <laughs> which right. just trains, them, it trains them in being aggressive, which is not necessarily the way to operate yourself through life, being that aggressive, you know. But then you, call, you you generate blowback from people and you have a hard time. So, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword, I think is the famous saying. You know? So so anyway, that's, those are very valuable things. And uh, it's the three educations, in, in, uh, which are, and they're all fun. They're the education of your, of your worldview, of your mind, of trying to be common sense, believe in causality see what causes this and that result and learn from it and learn to improve the result and then learn to meditate, learn how your mind operates better and be able to be more on top of your emotions and your mind so that you can become more effortlessly friendly and loving and open. And then you'll have so much a better life than other people. It just makes every difference in the world. You become so popular and nice when you are nice and, and it's possible to do it. And it's, it's a skill. It's like a skill, though. And then, and then also ethics. Learn that ethics is not just some rule someone is giving you, but it's like it's guidelines and how to interact with others in a successful and helpful way. And it really helps you ultimately. And uh, there's a strong self-interest in being nice, uh, being altruistic with others, and compassionate. And what the Dalai Lama always talks about: warm-heartedness. He, he, he uses that expression at 86. He says warm-heartedness, warm, more warm-heartedness. 
you know, educate the heart, not just the the, the brain. You know, he always says, you know. and that that well, there's a lot of skill in that, and there's a lot of technique. Just like you know, you have how you learn how to be a teacher, so you learn how to teach yourself, you know, and you can, and and uh, it works, you know, bit by bit, baby steps, you know. I love. Do you love Bill Murray? I love Bill Murray. I don't know if you ever saw a movie called What About Bob? Right. Did you ever see that? I did. Isn't it you know, great? It wasn't, wasn't about me, unfortunately. It wasn't Bob. <laughs> but I love it, you know, where he was supposed to be crazy, right? And his shrink was supposed to be, like, judging him and everything. And then it turned out the shrink had no control of his emotions. And and the Bill Murray character would he would take his goldfish with him when he'd go for the weekend in a plastic bag and he would constantly tell himself baby steps, baby steps, bit by bit, you know. It was very practical actually. And I loved that well, film. It was really it was well, just comedy, but it was very fun. Well, very nice. Uh an hour can go by pretty fast and we're pretty much out of time. So I wanna make sure oh, the audience knows about your books and your website. Can okay. you share that with us? Sure, it's uh, bobthurman.com is my website, www.bobthurman, one word, lowercase, bobthurman.com. That's my website. The book is Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life. The most fun of them is the third fun fact, which is the prognosis. You know, Buddha was like a therapist looking at, at ordinary people, and his Prognosis for every ordinary person is you are going to be really happy when you know what's going on, which you are capable of knowing, and you're going to get there. And I'm sure you're going to get there. And you know what? There's going to be zillions of enlightened beings, savior beings, loving beings, moms, Buddhas, Jesuses, Krishnas, whatever, who are going to help you. And, and life is going to be better than ever all the time. It's going to be a miracle. And actually, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to burst into song, but there's no, there's no song that I like better than that amazing grace. I was lost and I am found, you know, amazing grace. That's the, the miracle. And, uh, and if it's God for you, that's okay. If it's Buddha, that's okay. If it's quantum mirror reality, that's okay. Because it's a, and this is something I have learned that I didn't put in the book. And if I can quickly say, you know, the, the scientists, the materialist scientists are kind of up a creek because their model of the universe is flying apart. <laughs> but, but one lady, a very nice physicist lady in Cambridge, I think, or Oxford, I think Cambridge in England, she came up with the theory that there's some dark matter and dark energy and that 97% of the universe is dark matter and dark energy. And because she, she made a theory about that, she said that's the glue that holds the universe together. Otherwise, it would fly apart. The 3%, that's the bright stuff that you see. But the problem with it is, of course, you can't see the dark matter, the dark energy. It's like gravity. You can't see it. But it must right. be there or you'd fly off the earth, Right. So it's right. a thing like that. But in a way, in a way, it's only theorized. It's not proven because it's dark. But what I learned in talking about that to people in this book is that what reality is, is a differently, different invisible thing. It's not dark matter and dark energy, 97% of the universe, holding the 3% that we can see together. It's What it is, is transparent matter and energy, which is also invisible. But it's like crystal. It's like a diamond. It's transparent. You still can't see what's transparent. And it's, but this is not 97%. It's 100% because we ourselves are fully transparent. And therefore, we are reality. So we don't need to fear it. But we, but we need to manage the part of it that's us where we enjoy the bliss that it is. It's not even giving it to us. It's just is it. So the bliss is in us, and it is our life force, and it's our vitality, and it's our health, and it's our happiness. So Very nice. be happy. Well, be happy is the, is the word. And choose happiness. You know? Choose it. And you are well, happy. Robert, I want to thank you yes. for being our guest tonight. This has been a delightful conversation. Thank you so much. 
thank you so much for having me, Les. And anytime I'm at your service, anytime I'll call you. Maybe it'll be last minute, but I'll call you, and we'll talk. And I and all of your people who are lucky enough to listen to you often, all the time. Uh, I all my best to all of them. Okay, I love and happy Thanksgiving. We've been talking with Robert Thurman, and the topic tonight has been Wisdom is Bliss. I want to thank you, the listener, for showing up for yourself. It's been a delightful episode. It's um, it's most curious times we live in, but, but I, um, how you see the reflection, how you see the reality outside of you is, is a a result of your consciousness. So you're never stuck. You always have an opportunity to reorient and re-experience reality. So, um, and it comes through uh, shows like this where you show for yourself. I'm your host, Les Jensen. I'd like to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving weekend. It's been a pleasure. Until next time, thanks for listening. This has been a New Human Living radio broadcast. You can raise your own personal power with Personal Power Fundamentals Home Study Course at newhumanliving.com. Thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.